Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Again, if you just came in, I'm Brandon, one of the pastors here at SOMA. Um, normally during our teaching time, one of our pastors will, elders will teach. Um, one of our primary responsibilities uh, in the New Testament for a pastor is to teach and instruct uh, the body and sound doctrine, and we uh, certainly enjoy doing that. So the majority of the time, uh, we do the heavy lifting there. But occasionally, um, and it, those who have preached or taught before know it's a lot of energy and time that goes into doing it, so we don't get to do it as much as we'd like to. But we also see... It's not the exclusive domain of pastors. In 1 Corinthians and other places, we see gifted men and women who are uh, teaching and instructing. Uh, matter of fact, the Bible says teach one another, and that's uh, non-gender specific, has nothing to do with role, has to do with a calling and a gifting that each of us have to instruct one another. And so we get the opportunity and the privilege to hear from others in our body who are gifted in the area of teaching. And so this morning, I'm thankful that uh, Christian McKinnon is going to be coming. Christian's one of our deacons. He and his wife, Robin, serve as our deacons of family ministry, and Christian's going to be leading us in this passage on Matthew 6. So let's welcome Christian as he comes to share God's word with us. Probably wondering if I'm moving in here with my backpack. It's a little bit of an intrigue and mystery there that I'll share a little later. Um, so again, my name is Christian McKinnon, uh, covenant member here at Selma, and it's a pleasure to be here again. Uh, today's, today's passage uh, might be a little heavy, I'll be honest with you. After I preached at the first sermon, um, I, I felt like, wow, that, that, was, that was heavier than I thought. Um, and it was heavy because it was Jesus' words. Um, not a lot of these words are going to be mine, with the exception of the stories that God uh, did weave into our lives. So let's get started. My, my, my prayer for you today is that you'd realize that you're not owners. God is. You are not owners, but God is. If you and I are true followers of Christ then we are stewards. Um, one of the things that uh, I did a lot as a young parent was try to read to my kids. And it wasn't until Madeline, who was leading us earlier, uh, she got to be about three years old before she finally started to comprehend and I could actually have a conversation with her. I felt like I was talking to myself or, uh, and sorry parents, but when, when my kids were really little uh, babies, I, I would call them affectionately spineless blobs. Um, but, but when Maddie was three, I was able to finally uh, converse with her about Christ. And I used this book to do it. And in fact, I used this book uh, with every single one of my kids. Um, and, and so you can see it's, it's torn, it's tattered, um, it's taped together. Um, there are several pages that are marked up by who knows who. I'm sure one of my five kids. Uh, we've lost part of this book only to refine it and tape it back in. And uh, so we're going to be going to this go-to book. Um, uh, a couple of times in today's, today's sermon to share with you um, the truth about what God has for our treasure. And so I want to start right off the bat here with um, one of my favorites. I grew up on a farm, and this, this one really is near and dear to my heart. Um, and it's about the rich farmer, the rich farmer. 
my dad heard about this and he said, well, that was not about me, apparently. Um, but Jesus said, the land of a certain rich man brought forth abundantly and he reasoned with himself saying, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? So the story of the rich farmer. Here is a rich farmer. The farmer is rich because his soil is rich and his corn grows faster than anyone else's. I'm already envious. And higher than anyone else's. And at harvest time, he has much more than anyone else. Lucky man. This year he has so much corn that his old barn can't hold it all. It's bursting at the seams. No problem, says the farmer. I will pull it down and build a bigger one. Then next year I will be rich enough to take life easy. So he builds a bigger barn. But when the harvest comes round again, the, the new barn is not big enough. The greedy farmer has planted more corn than ever and some carrots too. No problem, says the farmer. I will build an even bigger, better barn. Then next year I will be richer still and then I can really enjoy myself. So he builds a bigger, better barn. But at harvest time, even the bigger, better barn is not big enough. Again, the farmer has planted too much corn, too many carrots, and this time, cabbage. This time, the farmer says to himself, I will build the biggest, grandest barn the world has ever seen, and then I shall, I shall be rich. I need never work again. And the barn he builds reaches up to the sky. When it finishes, when, it, when it's finished, the farmer sighs, a great big sigh. Tomorrow I will gather in the harvest, and then at last I shall begin to enjoy myself. I know, I'll have a party. But that very night, in his sleep, he dies, just like that. The birds eat his corn, the rabbits dig up his carrots, and the cabbages go to seed. The big barn stands empty, and the rich farmer never does get to enjoy his money. Poor man. And Jesus says, how silly it is for a man to spend his whole life storing up riches for himself. To God, he is really a poor man. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read Scripture and I think about, okay, that's convicting. Sometimes it's not <clears throat> yet even as convicting as a small story to little kids. And I must admit, and my kids were here in the first row during the first sermon, and they were, I had to remind them of, of a question that they would ask me a lot of times after I would read a story like this. Because my hope was that Jesus would grab their attention, grab their heart, right? And then I'd have this long, pregnant, awkward pause after I would read a story like this. And my, one of my kids would say, okay, next story. And then they'd look up at me and and there would be a tear welling up in my eye because this story touched me. And many of these stories touched me. And they'd ask the question every time, Dad, are you about to cry? Yeah, I am. And uh, so my hope is that, that uh, you would realize that through these stories that we are not owners. We are not owners, but God is. We are stewards if we're truly, truly followers of Christ. Anybody in here uh, ever read the book, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn? Raise your hand. All right. Fantastic. Uh, we'd love to see you in about six months. More hands go in the air. Fantastic book. It's a little book. Write that down if you're taking notes. Randy Alcorn, The, the Treasure Principle. And in that book, 
Randy Alcorn says that 15% of everything that Jesus ever talked about, he talked about wealth, riches, and money. That's more than heaven and hell combined. Why? Because Jesus knew that this was an anxious topic, that we would be worried about it, and we would put many of our resources, many of our talents, a lot of our energy to try to gain it. So it is an important topic. So my prayer again, let me repeat it again for you today, is to realize your God-given role, if you're a follower of Christ, is that you're not the owner, but God is. We are stewards. Some big topics that I hope that you get out of today is, uh, first of all, Jesus' teaching shows us that he wants us to do three things. He wants us to know that our choices and our actions are shaped by the things that we cherish most. Secondly, that we would devote ourselves to the pursuit of heavenly blessings and not earthly ones. And thirdly, sort of the opposite, to detach ourselves from worldly goods and wealth so as to not divide our loyalty. So let's take a a, a deeper dive. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open back up to to Matthew 6. And we're going to be jumping around today. I'll try to announce where we're going. I will tell you that this, in Matthew 6, we've been on the Sermon on the Mount since, since about September. And every single time, every single message that God has for us, that Jesus taught us on the Sermon on the Mount, He's raising the bar. And so He's going to raise the bar today with relative to the things that we treasure most. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. So from verses 19 through 34, it's talking about anxiety, it's talking about treasure, and today this particular passage talks about the first of three commandments. And it's in the negative form, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And next week we'll talk about the other two commandments as we look at uh, verses 25 to the end of this chapter of, of 6. Keep in mind, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest sermon. Jesus is on a mountainside, and there's a lot of people listening. And so this is smack in the middle of his sermon. So we're going to try to pick it apart. And I'm going to try to pick it apart by um, a very important lesson that I learned in my life. Um, it was uh, 2005, August 3rd, 2005, and that's the day of our anniversary, Robin and I's anniversary. And so it's a very special day, but on this day, I wasn't with her. I was actually spending time with my dad. Now, why was I with my dad? I was with my dad because we had decided to become missionaries a couple of years before, and we had learned some really hard lessons about giving up, giving up treasures, giving up wealth. Um, I was an executive director of a non-for-profit, and I was making pretty good money, and we gave all of that up. And through counsel, through mentors, we learned to not store up our, for ourselves treasures on earth. And I remember this. I, I continued to continue to, uh, to, to debate with God. Is this the right thing to do? And I finally relented, and God just rushed in. We raised our funds for, for uh, four years in a matter of nine months. God just rushed in. And, and the day that I remember uh, asking God and telling God, I'll go to Mexico, but you've got to prove that you've got the money behind this. Because we got a lot of money to raise to go there for four years. And in nine months it was done. And in fact, it was really only about three, three months worth of work. And God continued to bring it in. Those of you who have been on the mission field, I'm sure you have stories like that. But I remember this, that 
uh, you would have thought that after nine months that I would have remembered, wow, God ha- owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he can just dole out money whenever he wants. You'd think that, he, that I would have gotten that. But I remember crossing the border on August 3rd, 2005 with my dad between, uh, into Mexico, uh, between Reynosa, Mexico and Monterey, Mexico. So a little bit of uh, information about that piece of geography. Number one, uh, this is narco land, right? So drug gangs left and right. Um, and if they don't steal your things, the, the government and the police will, right? And so here I am. I have all of my goods. I've sold my house. Uh, Robin and the kids are going to join us later. They're in California with my in-laws, and they're going to join us in Mexico in about two weeks. And I remember vividly ha- just being overcome with fear, overcome with fear. And, and, and it, was, it was all of those fears coming back in the one moment. And the big question was, what on earth have you done? What on earth have you done, Christian? You've sold your house, all your possessions, most of your possessions. You have some things in your, in, in your mom and dad's garage. Uh, you've left your, left your network. You have a, a few boxes in the back with your prized possessions. And at any one moment, these drug lords could swoop in and steal our things. And there's police everywhere. Who knows if, they're gonna, if we can trust them. We would know later that we couldn't. But here's the thing. God said that even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and that's how I felt, that I am with you. And he was with us all four of those years. And what's in the bag here is actually a representation of one of those lessons that I learned. We were um, ministering to uh, a young gal that was in our house in Mexico during those four years. And I remember having a meeting uh, with her, and Robin was there. And and I remember looking up the windowsill, just kind of thinking about what are we going to do next, and um, and I was probably trying to figure out what the next word in Spanish to say because my Spanish wasn't that great then. Still not. But I remember looking up at the windowsill and there was our money jar where we would put our extra change. Everybody has a place where you put extra change, right? Your junk drawer. And, and we would put it in this little, this little ceramic thing, a uh, little jar that Robin's dad bought for her. It was really near and dear to her heart. It had a little frog on the top. And I remember uh, just looking at it. And all of a sudden she left and we came back in to, to clean up and it was gone. I thought to myself, uh-oh, not, not only are there issues with this gal that we were trying to minister to, but also she, she just stole from us. And I remember thinking, gosh, if we could just get that jar back, there was only about 100 pesos in. Today's money, that's about $5. So I'm not really worried about the money, but Lord, if you could just show me where that jar is, that would be great because Robin's pretty sad right now. And so I started to dig through the trash kind of like this, and I found it. Now, this funny little frog jar, it's near and dear to my wife's heart, was a super special representation of how God was going to protect us. We literally had $5 stolen from us in Mexico over four years. It's pretty extraordinary, if you, if you know anything about that country. And we lived in Mexico City, and, uh, and, and, and we entered some pretty rough parts of town. We had a car. We had three kids when we went, came back with four one was born there. Uh, all kinds of opportunities for us to be taken advantage of. And that's the only thing that was taken from us. Fast forward now to 2010. We're back off the field. We're living in the United States. And I'm on a business trip. And i driving to Chicago because I had to do some things for my visa. Uh, catch a, catching a flight at O'Hare to go overseas. Robin and the kids are over in Ohio visiting some friends. And I get a phone call. Pick up the phone. 
And on the other end of the line is the alarm company. Mr. Pink, Mr. McKinnon, I'm so sorry to, to report to you, but your house has been broken into. Right then, my neighbor uh, called in. I hung up on the alarm company, picked up the phone for my neighbor, and I said, Nora, are, are you there? Yes, I'm here at your house. Cops are here. Uh, is there, was there a break-in? Well, yes, there was a break-in. We're at the back door, broken glass, on the floor. And I said, Nora, if you could, if you could just please go upstairs, turn left. That's our bedroom. And on top of the dresser, there's a box about like so. Could you just check to see if it's there? She goes up, and I could hear her whispering to her husband, I don't see anything, and she gets back on. There's nothing here. Now, what was that box? That box was all of Robin's mom's, late mom's, jewelry. Gone. I'll never forget, I pulled over on the side of the road, like a Walmart in the south side of Chicago, I pulled over to grab my, my senses around me because I couldn't drive. I was, I was shaking. We had been violated. And on top of that, Robin's mom, late mom's jewelry, like the one thing, the one thing that she got from her mom, gone. Now she was thinking of the sentimental value. I was thinking of the actual value, <laughs> candidly. And you can see that I'm still a little fired up about this. It's been a little cathartic going through this and, 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 and figuring out what does this mean. And I, I had this overwhelming sense that, that God was teaching me. He, he came in like, like, and gave me a big old bear hug as I sat there in the parking lot, almost ready to weep, definitely shaking. We've been violated, God. This is not fair. He came in and, 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 and gave me a hug, but he also smacked me with a two-by-four. And said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Have I not told you that before? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Christian. What a difficult way to learn this lesson. And so we learned through that that we are not owners of the things that we have in our hands, the clothes that we wear, our jewelry, even our own kids. We are not the owners God is. We are stewards if we're truly followers of Christ. So let's keep going here in verse 22 and 23. Verse 22 and 23 says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I have to admit, I I almost skipped over these two verses when I thought, thought about um, uh, bringing these and trying to figure out how, how does this fit in. I, I had a debate with Jesus, honestly. And I said, well, this seems misplaced. I, I get this. I, I, I totally agree. Jesus, you're right. Verse 22, 23, check, check. Totally agree. But why is it here about treasure? Shouldn't this be in the salt and the light? Shouldn't this be on the city on the hill? And I started reading through, and luckily I had a, a concordance that I started looking at, and, and it, I did a double click, and it, was a, it, was, it sent me to Deuteronomy 15. What's in Deuteronomy 15? Deuteronomy 15 ex- essentially explains what everybody on the, that mountainside, on the Sermon on the Mount, would have completely understood and connected to the dots immediately. For me, I had, luckily, a concordance 2,000 years later to try to figure out why on earth did you say this about the eye when you're talking about treasure? 
You see, in Deuteronomy 15, it says, Every creditor shall release what he has lent his neighbor. He shall not exact it uh, to his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Every seven years, there was a tradition that God laid out that uh, debt would be released. So if you owe me money, on that seventh year, it's reconciled to zero. Why? Because God did not like for people to be in poor conditions. Let's read in Deuteronomy 15, 9 through 11. Take care lest there be, there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say in the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing and cry out to the Lord against you. And he cry out to the Lord against you. And you be guilty of sin. Wow. That escalated. You shall give him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give him because for this, the Lord, your God will bless you in all your work and all you undertake for there will never cease to be poor in the land, poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in the land. It's very clear that God has a purpose for our wealth. It is to help those around us. He does not like for people to be in a poor condition. It's very clear. So our focus here, when you look at at verse 22 and 23, then really we're not talking about the eye, the literal eye. We're looking at the eye of our heart, your focus. Where is your focus? Where is your heart toward giving? And that's what Jesus is raising the bar. Remember, he's raised the bar so many times on the Sermon on the Mount. He's doing it again. He's doing it again, and he knows that those people, many of them poor, need to still hear this because they can still get wrapped around the axle with money. And money isn't really the issue. It's about divided loyalty. And so as we move forward, we'll continue to to be challenged. Here's another challenge. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, this is just a big charter. This, this kingdom charter from, from Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It's what God desires. It is Jesus' expectations of us. And he double clicks on something that is very near and dear to our heart, which is money. And he tells us from this point forward, I'm going to continue to teach. And so when we, when we look at all of those different spokes, this is like the nerve center. The, the, I look at the Sermon on the Mount as almost a nerve center of all the things that Jesus is going to unravel and to teach and all of his parables and all of the miracles that he would do all the way to the cross and all the way back up in resurrection. This is the nerve center. And one of, the, one of those spokes out of the nerve center can be found in Mark 10. If you want to turn to Mark 10, we'll talk specifically about one verse and we'll give some context Mark 10, 21 says this, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, what is the context here? The context is is that there is a rich young ruler who heard about Jesus. He heard about Jesus and he wants to know more about Jesus. In fact, he has a conversation with them saying, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Well, what about the commandments? What do they say? And he rattles off all the things that he had done. And Jesus says, well, sounding good so far. But then he says one thing you lack because he knew the man's heart. 
He knew that there was divided loyalty. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And the rich young ruler, and you can read for yourself, turned around and walked away, downcast. So what's fascinating is the story's not over yet. The story's not over yet um, because there's a conversation between, uh, between the disciples and Jesus. And I want to, first of all, read the second story out of this book. This is one of my favorites of all time. This one, this, this one was read, uh, I read to my kids more than any of the others. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a sewing needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's taken out of, of Mark 10, 25 in that same, that same um, passage. The little gate. The little gate. Here is a wall which surrounds a town, and the wall is a little gate. It has a funny name. It is called the eye of a needle because it is so small. One day a camel arrives at the gate. This is no ordinary camel. He has a fine saddle with red tassels and and his own servant boy to flick away the flies. He is loaded high with carpets to sell in the market. Make way, he says. I'm coming through. But he isn't coming through at all. He can't get through the hole. He's too big. Try wriggling through backwards, says the boy. And he shows the camel how. Camels never wriggle, says the camel. But just the same, he turns around and pushes his bottom into the hole. He, he heaves, he pushes, he even wriggles. But it's no good. He cannot get through the gate. I'll unload you, says the boy. He unties the ropes and takes off the carpets. Now try again. It's no use. The camel still cannot squeeze through the gate. Your saddle keeps getting stuck, says the boy. You'll have to let me take it off. Without the fine saddle, the camel does not look proud or important anymore. He's just an ordinary camel. One more time, or one more, the the camel tries, down on his knees, shuffling forward inch by inch until finally, hooray, he's through. And Jesus says, it is very hard for a rich man to get into heaven. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. You can see why I had to pause after these stories. My kids wanted the next story, next story, let's go, let's go. And I had to pause and I had to think, am I like that camel? Am I loaded down so much to the point that I can't get through? That I can't get through to Christ? Because he, he, he's, he's holding out his hands, but I'm clenched. And I have my things. And I have my wealth. I have my desire. I have what I want. And God, you can't have it. Now we don't say that, but our actions do. So the story of the camel is an amazing, an amazing one about uh, where our affinities are. Where do we put our heart? This is a heart issue much more than it is thinking about your, your check ledger or how much money you have in the bank. And here's the thing. In verse 26, here's what the disciples say about this story. They hear the story. Imagine holding up an eye, a, 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 a needle, a sewing needle. And even in, in ancient Greek uh, theologians say that there's a debate on what Camille means. Because in Greek, 
The word uh, camel that we say is camillo, and it sounds very similar to another word known as rope. So pick whatever object you want. It's not going through the eye of a needle, uh, the eye of a sewing needle. And they see, and, and, and the disciples are just like, what? There's no way. Look, it's in verse 26, it says, then who can be saved? You can just, you can just hear Peter say that. Like, come on, what? help me out here. This makes no sense. And Jesus had them right where he wanted them. He's like, yeah, you're, you're right. He says, with man, it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. You see, you and I are not owners. God is. We're stewards if we're truly followers of Christ. Quickly, some other verses that talk about money. Remember, the 15% of everything that Jesus talked about um, was around money. In Luke 14, if you'd like to turn there, I'm going to go quickly through a few verses here um, just to kind of share with you the, the breadth and the knowledge of, and the connections that Jesus um, shared as he walked through Israel during, during, his, uh, during his three years here in his ministry. And he says, says in Luke 14.33, Whoever does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. Renounce? Because Jesus sees an abundance of possessions as a hindrance of faith. He instructs us, his followers, to rid, them, rid those things, anything that can easily entangle us, to prevent total commitment from God, toward God. He's going after our affinities. He's, he's wanting us to desire Him more than anything else. Luke 12, 15 says this, A person's life does not consist in possessions that he has. A person's life does not consist in possessions that he has. One of my favorites, Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and all His righteousness. And all of these things, in parentheses, I'm going to add, those things that you think you need that you buy with money. Your car, your house, your clothes, status even. All of those things will be added unto you if you seek Him first. In Luke 19, some of you actually have this memorized uh, from your time as, uh, in, in, in Sunday school. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And then Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down for I'm coming to your house to stay. You see, Zacchaeus was uh, a bit of a low life. He was a low life because he was, he was scraping off the top. He, he, was, he was a tax man. Okay? Now, if you work in taxes, okay, I think we've fixed a lot of the compliance issues that didn't exist back then. The compliance issues of being able to scrape off the top. Zacchaeus was in the middle of that. He was in the middle of that, and he came to his house that night, and they had dinner. There were probably disciples. There were probably Pharisees there. And he said, Behold, Lord, half of the goods I give to the poor. So in other words, this is Zacchaeus realizing and doing an about face, a 180 saying, I repent. And because of that, that is causing me to, to give abundantly back to you. I'm going to give half of everything that I have to you. And Jesus says this, Today salvation has come to this house. Not because of Zacchaeus' giving, but because Zacchaeus accepted the Lord and, and out of that abundance, he was willing to give whatever it took. He wanted to repay back half, half of everything he had. 
One of the first uh, stories that I read was, was about the, the barns and the rich, the, the, the rich farmer. In Luke 12, 20, it talks about that. Specifically in verse 32, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches like the one that broke into my house that night. And no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of my favorite stories, one that convicts me every time I read it. I, I, when, when, I, when I started preparing for the sermon, I wondered if this passage was going to come up, and it did. Luke 21, verse 1. Luke 21, verse 1. It's a story. So imagine, so every week, every week we, we, we pass the baskets, right? So imagine Jesus coming in with his disciples. And, and they're looking for two types of people. He's looking for two types of people. One type of person that gives out of legalism. Right. And those were those were all over the place. Those were the Pharisees. Right. And there's another type of person that gave out of their heart. And in verse one, it says, truly, I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now, scholars say that the the least amount of currency back then was one copper coin. She gave two. And they also agree this, that this kind of giving from if it really was a widow, And if she really did give that much, that could have impeded her survival. That's how much she was sold out to Christ. She was sold out to giving. Because she knew that blessings would be returned. It's not a karma thing, but it's a kingdom thing. And that's what Jesus is trying to get toward, is that when you give, when you realize that you are not the owner, that I am, Jesus says, and your place is, is the place of a steward, then we have things the way they're supposed to go. Because God knows more. God has, he has a, 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 a larger vantage point than we do. He, he sits at the balcony, he can see further than we can. I can just see the, the next step. And sometimes my giving might cause me, when I think about it, is that going to really cause me to be happy? If that's you, if you've asked that question, I'm glad you have because the Bible talks about that also. Can we be happy when we give? Giving people are the happiest people on earth, says Randy Alcorn, the author of The Treasure Principle. Also, the Bible says it too. In Proverbs 14, 21, happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Happy. Proverbs 22 says this, he who is generous generous will be blessed. Acts 20 says this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. John Piper says this, there is no positive correlation between having money, having many things and being very happy. A life of simplicity with a governor on your spending and a passion to advance the kingdom through giving will be far happier, uh, far happier life than a life of luxury. I have some quotes that I found um, from uh, millionaires that lived, uh, started in uh, the Industrial Revolution. So these guys are long gone, but here are their quotes. Uh, W.H. Vanderbilt says this, the care of, a, uh, of $200 million, in other words, caring for $200 million, is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. John Rockefeller says this, I have, many, I have made many millions, uh, but they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie says, millionaires seldom smile. 
I am the most miserable man on earth, says uh, John Jacob Astor. And this is one of my favorites. I was happier doing the job of a mechanic, Henry Ford. So that happiness can be seen when we give and we truly connect with the value that comes from knowing Christ. I want to share with you one last story from my go-to book, Reading to My Kids. And I apologize that some of you might be thinking, Christian, you should be down in, uh, in, in, in Soma Kids to read these stories. And I actually told that to somebody earlier and they said, actually, uh, we adults need to hear these stories because we need to have this broken down. Let me tell you one more thing. Um, Matthew 13, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. And on finding one pearl of extreme value, he went and sold all of his possessions and bought it. The precious pearl. Here is a man who buys and sells things. He is called a merchant. He has a fine fur coat and a felt hat with a, with a floppy feather. It's his favorite. The house he lives in is huge. It has five floors, a fish pond with a fountain in the front garden. The merchant has everything he wants. He has 15 rooms filled with furniture. He has four freezers full of food and three fridges for fizzy drinks. Not bad. And there's more money under his mattress than you could ever imagine. More, much more. Yes, the merchant has everything he wants. One day, though, in a shop window, he sees something. Something very special. It is a wonderful white pearl. $500,000, says the man in the shop. I think inflation maybe has adjusted since then. It's even more money than the merchant has under his mattress. But he wants the pearl more than anything in the world. He hurries home. He has a plan. He sells his furniture, his fridges, and his freezers full of food. He sells his house, his fountain, and his fish pond. He sells his fine fur coat, but the felt hat with the floppy feather he keeps. After all, it's his favorite. He, he borrows a barrow and bundles in the money. Off to the shop, he trundles to buy the pearl. Oh, dear. He's six dollars short. Sell me your hat for six dollars, says the man in the shop. And the merchant laughs. He hands the, ma- the man his hat and takes the pearl. Hooray, the pearl is, is his at last. Jesus says, God is like the merchant's pearl. It costs everything to know him, but he is worth more than anything in the world. That was a pauser for me as well. One where I had to pause and ask myself, where's, where's my heart? Am I putting my, my, my treasure in my heart here on earth or in heaven? As we conclude here, my prayer for you today was that you would realize your God-given role, that, that you're not the owner, you're the steward if you're truly a follower of Christ. We have all kinds of needs around us. We, we prayed for global missions earlier. Um, we, 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 we do tithe. Um, we, we do have missions. Um, I will tell you that, that there, was, there was an individual that, that gave to us when we were missionaries, and he, he, he told us about the tithe. And he said, you know, tithing, Christian, because of the Sermon on the Mount, God raising the bar... Tithing is actually the floor, not the ceiling. Many of us look as, at the at tithing as, oh, I'll get there one day. Well, this one particular donor said, 
My goal, Christian, is actually to give 90% of everything I, I make away. Since then, he started his own business. He's an engineer, and he's giving about 70%. He's not there yet. He's giving 70% away. He's giving out of his heart just as much as the poor widow. How much are we giving? And I have to be honest with you. I don't stand up here perfect. This has been cathartic, and this has been challenging for me as well, that I need to give more. We do, have, uh, we do have the baskets that we pass around. We do have needs right here in our church. But even more than that, we have missionaries. We have missionaries who do go hungry. Why? Because they're giving their own food away. And I know that. I've talked to them. Missionaries from our own church. We have poor. If, if you were here on Easter Sunday, my daughter sat here and prayed. And I don't know why she prayed for the poor. It wasn't, it wasn't part of the plan. But it touched many of you. Some of you came up to me saying you had tears in your, in your eyes as she prayed over the poor. I had no idea where she got that. I guess it was the Holy Spirit wanting us to remember the poor around us. It doesn't take us long to see the poor here in Indianapolis. The widow. How many, how many nursing homes do we drive by? Could we? And that's not an issue of treasure. It's, a, it's an issue of talent. It's an issue of time. God give us, gave us all of those that we can give away. And finally, the need of the orphan. There are enough orphans. The number of orphans actually matches the number of churches that we have in the state. Did you know that? Do the math. We could, end orf- uh, uh, we could end that problem right here, right now. If our churches would just stand up and take responsibility for the things that Jesus is pushing us toward. He's raising the bar. We're not the owners. He is. We're to be stewards of our time, of our, of our, of our talent, and most importantly, out of this passage, our treasure. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come to you this morning, and this is hard teaching. This is hard teaching that you give us. But you, you tell us to, to not worry because, because we are right when we say that it's impossible. But with God, all things are, are possible. With God, all things are possible. And so, Lord, we lay this, this passage, we lay this challenge down. Um, and, Lord, we just ask that you would guide and direct us. I pray, Lord, that we would see an avalanche of giving, not just from this church, but from the global church into the needs of those around us. Lord, help us to, to cling on to those things more loosely because they're yours. Help us to truly be your ambassadors. Help us to be your stewards of the things that you've given us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.